Hello, blast-ended scroots and ferrets. Welcome to the Time Turner, Harry Potter in-depth. Per usual, Ken and I are doing an in-depth analysis on what happened of each set of chapters in Harry Potter and looking for ties to the endgame, foreshadowing, anything special we want to talk about, and hot takes or big questions we have. Today, we're going over chapters 13 through 15 of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. The usual warnings, this is a podcast for grown-ups, and the whole point of it is for spoilers. So this is best if you've already read the books or watched the movies. But first, Ken needs to channel his inner Professor Bins and remind ourselves what happened in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, chapters 10 through 12. Last episode, we talked about how Harry, Hermione, and the Weasleys left for the World Cup. We get our first hints of Percy pushing away from his family, Hermione continues to be an activist, and Ron and Harry find dress clothes in their luggage. Arthur leaves the borough to deal with an emergency involving new character Mad-Eye Moody. The students board the Hogwarts Express, and Draco is, once again, a dick. Hermione freaks out over Hogwarts' use of house elves. We find out that there's not going to be any Quidditch this year, but that we will have the Triwizard Tournament. Unfortunately for our heroes, you must be 17 to enter. Guess Harry and co. won't be involved in the tournament. Won't come up again, I'm sure. It's time. Let's grab our firebolts, dodge our bludgers, as we work through who scored and who fell off their broom in chapters 13 through 15 of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Chapter 13. The kids, which they're not really kids anymore, I guess. They're starting yeah, to become teenagers. Te- teenagers now, yeah. Kids are easier to type in our notes. <laughs> the kids are getting ready for classes to begin. Hermione is eating again and mentions that she is no longer on her food strike, but she is finding other ways to help the house elves. Harry, though, is very worried because Hedwig hasn't returned yet with Sirius's letter. School starts and classes begin. The Gryffindors and Slytherins are together for care of magical creatures, and Hagrid, the professor, introduces the blast-ended Scroots, which highly concerns for school children. This really seems a little out of place, right? Yeah, and as we know from the end of the book, these are exceptionally dangerous creatures, and not so sure they're good for 14-year-olds. Not, no, not sure. Not maybe the best idea. No, 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 no. Harry and Ron go to their first divination class, which now Hermione obviously is not there after her little mishap in the previous book, which this class is just as special as always. What a treat anytime we have a class in divination. I mean, it's always funny. It's wonderful, and as we talked about last book, usually pretty correct on its uh, predictions. Yeah, Harry was actually contemplating about how Trelawney may have actually made a real prediction last year, and while he's thinking about that, as a 14-year-old does, he fell asleep in class. He's woken up, and I guess the professor (laughs) was talking to him, which is everyone's worst nightmare, and she has to repeat herself, and Trelawney says, well, Harry, you must have been born in midwinter, something about, like, Saturn's position or something like that, which is a very funny prediction, and we're going to discuss this one later, so hold that thought. We also get a Uranus joke. (laughs) Right. Waka waka waka. Which is very funny, but I think it actually does something important in the book here. It really takes us out of kind of an elementary school. These are children vibe. We're starting to get a reminder that these are teenagers making teenager jokes, which I think is a critical thing that has to happen to get us to the point of the Yule Ball and the romantic relationship with Crumb. You don't really want to look at them as little children anymore. So it's very funny 
funny, but I think it does serve a purpose. Also, he makes the joke to Lavender, right? Which, yes. like, brings it to a whole new level. Right. <laughs> what happens, you know, right. a couple years from yes. now. Yes, his love interest from book six. Absolutely. And typical kind of first week of class stuff is happening. Draco gets involved with Harry and Ron. And Draco just, you know, so nicely, so friendly lets Ron and Harry know that Mr. Weasley was in the paper about the Mad-Eye Moody police situation. And it was very embarrassing for the family and for the ministry. Which is just funny that, like, Draco's reading the paper and letting them know because he doesn't read the paper. And Harry delivers a pretty sick burn on Draco's mom about how she looks like she smelled something rotten. He's getting a lot better with his insults. Yeah, Harry's sass is really strong. We like it. We've gone a long way from eat slugs and then trying to do a spell that literally makes you eat slugs. Yeah, I mean, this is a little more cleverness to it, although we're not not the height of Harry sass yet. But no. we're getting there. Malfoy doesn't like the mother burn, which is just so funny. He's like really the quintessential like condition can't take it kind of guy. Malfoy goes to curse Harry as he's walking away and one of the best scenes in the entire book series occurs where we have Professor Moody turn Malfoy into a ferret. Absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Wonderful. So funny. So fitting. The movie scene actually does a pretty good job of this. I generally don't like this movie. Although, as I've said a thousand times, I'll watch any of the movies. I don't think this was a particularly good adaptation. Very funny. And McGonagall sees what's going on. She quickly puts two and two together. Is that a student? <laughs> and Professor Moody's like, yeah. Yep, yep, that's definitely a student. She says, didn't we talk about this, <laughs> essentially? You know you're not supposed to turn students into pets. Right. So funny. And he's like, you know, well, he deserved it. <laughs> Which is just, it's just great. Great oversight of discipline at Hogwarts. It, it also takes on some nice added bonuses once you find out who Moody is or who's pretending to be Moody and how, you know, Crouch Jr. must feel about the Malfoy family. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the Malfoys are hated by both the hard hardcore Death Eaters at this point and the hardcore Aurors Good Wizards. So they're not in a very popular position, but they certainly act like they are. Yeah. So at the end of this chapter, we get a note that Hermione keeps going to the library and says it's not schoolwork. And the boys obviously are just the investigative skills without Hermione really suffer. They have no idea what she's doing. And we hear from Fred and George and Lee Jordan that they just went to Moody's class and they're like, wow, he's really seen it all. It was the coolest class ever. And Harry and Ron are very disappointed they don't have him for a couple days. Chapter 14. Everyone's really excited for their first Defense Against the Dark Arts class, which I'm pretty sure this is the first time since Harry's maybe first lesson that he's excited to go to class. He actually wants to go to class, which, you know, as an educator and as a graduate student, I like. You know, it's nice to see them actually want to be there. Well, Kat, <laughs> there's only one solution to this if you want the students to want to come to your class. I have to lose an eye. <laughs> well, and you have to start putting them under unforgivable curses. And turn them into ferrets. Yeah. yeah. I got you, a lot of work to do. I'm really yeah, behind the eight ball your, here. Your lesson planning <laughs> is just not caught up yeah. with the moody type of class. So the class begins and... And we get 
immediately some disappointing info that Matt and Moody says he's only going to be around for a year. He's back just for a year to give Dumbledore a favor. Very disappointing. At least we're managing some expectations here. (laughs) (laughs) It's only going to be a year. Okay. Now we're not getting excited that we're going to have Professor Lupin for the next four books and then we lose him. But Matt Moody says that he's going to be teaching the class about illegal curses. And we find out what the three unforgivable curses are. The Imperious Curse, which puts someone fully under your control. They'll do whatever you make them do. The Cruciatus Curse, which is just a horrible form of torture. Quick note that Neville, as we'll be talking about later in this book and more during the series, really seems to have a very visceral reaction to the Cruciatus Curse. And Avada Kedavra, the Killing Curse. Everyone freaks out upon seeing the Killing Curse in action, and Harry kind of puts two and two together, mostly because Moody lays it all out on the table. Yeah, puts two and two. <laughs> together. Moody's like, uh, only one person has ever survived the curse. Harry. And uh, he's right here, right in front of me. I'm not really sure that Harry did any kind of FBI analyses here. No, of course not. He now is able to put more pieces together and he's like, wow, this is how my parents died. Like, now I know what they saw. Like, did they just fall over like the spider? And yeah, this is it's, traumatic. It's a, it's, a, it's a sad moment. This is traumatic for Harry. He also kind of realizes he's been seeing a green flash in his dreams. And he realizes he's been kind of dreaming about his parents' murder. And I don't want to understate how truly awful this must be for anybody to have your parents die at such an early age or at any age at such an early age. Don't remember it. Didn't even know what actually happened to them in a conceptual way until you're 11 and then three years later actually figure out what kind of curse it was and what it looks like this is really a lot for a teenager absolutely yeah it's traumatic it's terrifying and it's thankfully something i never experienced and really probably can't understand after class ends neville is still acting really strange we still don't really know why and matt i moody takes him up to have a cup of tea which you know everyone's kind of freaking out about a little bit like this guy just performed all these curses and now he's going to give him a cup of tea like this is weird ron is talking nonchalantly about avada kedavra and kind of in that kind of like scared amazement voice of like like total lack of self-awareness you know absolute lack of self-awareness And then he realizes that Harry's not looking too great. And Ron realizes, oh shit, I'm talking about the curse that killed my best friend's parents. Maybe I shouldn't be like, wow, did you see the way the spider died? Like, come on, Ron, read the room. We find out that Moody gave Neville a book on water plants, something that Moody would be like, hey, this is a good thing to plant now, should be useful later if Harry wasn't so arrogant. More on that in later episodes of this book. And Harry compares this favorably to something Lupin would do. He thinks that talking to Neville about herbology, giving this book, is something Lupin would do to boost up Neville's self-esteem. And it really lays the foundation for us to like Moody. Harry immediately likes him, and it makes us as the readers say, okay, like, he's weird, but, like, he cares. He seems like a nice guy. Ron and Harry go to do their divination homework, and they quickly realize that they don't know anything about divination, so they start making up answers. We get some really nice, fake, kind of, predictions. They decide that Harry will be in danger of burns, will lose a treasured possession, and get stabbed in the back by someone he thought was a friend. Three uh, trials, one could say, there. So may- maybe they're better at divination than they thought, because that's all going to happen to them in the next uh, couple hundred yeah, pages. they're pretty <laughs> excellent at these predictions. I love all these divination scenes in the class, the homework. It's so funny. It's, it's a great break from, especially as these books get more serious, but it's like also kind of awesome that 
no matter how awful <laughs> they get, they, there seems to be a ring of truth. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Harry also says he will lose a bet, and I don't think that one plays out. I can't recall a, a bet. Yeah, I have he no loses. clue if he so, lost the uh, bet. He lost Harry's not as good at divination as Shrawani is my takeaway from that one. Harry notices Fred and George are sitting in the corner working on something quietly, which Harry points out is very unusual for them, and he starts to wonder maybe what they're up to. Hermione comes back from the library and introduces Harry, Ron, and the readers to SPEW, S-P-E-W, the Society for the Promotion of Elvish Welfare, which that's the shortest you could get it. That's already quite a mouthful, Hermione. The chapter ends with Hedwig coming back with Sirius's reply. Sirius is worried about the trends and the topics he's seen come up and suggests that Dumbledore must be seeing them as well, considering he brought Mad-Eye Moody out of retirement. Sirius says he's going to come back north and be around the Hogwarts area, and Harry uh, ends the chapter pretty upset about this, that Sirius is going to put himself back in danger by coming back up close to Hogwarts and being near him. Chapter 15. Harry writes back to Sirius saying, No, I'm fine. I'm fine. Don't worry. Don't bother coming. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. No need. No need. No need. Even before we get the answer back from Sirius, which we, we do, it was very obvious from that sentence that no one was going to believe Harry, that obviously he was full of crap. Harry had to convince Hedwig to take the letter to Sirius because he was initially rude to her before and... Hedwig was sassy and eventually did it, but she made her displeasure known. And uh, I'm just going to say I very much appreciate, you know, a strong, independent lady standing up to, to the man. Don't mistreat your pets, people. Yeah. In Defense Against the Dark Arts, Moody does something pretty crazy. He puts the students under the Imperious Curse. This is insane. Maybe we'll get a chance to talk about this later. I, I know this is a common thing in fandom to discuss if this is acceptable, ethical, whatever. But in terms of recap, Harry fights it off. At first, you know, he's just going to do whatever Moody says, but he is able to resist the Imperious Curse and Moody makes him do it again and again until he gets it right. Very cool, very interesting. And of course, there are theories as to how and why Harry can do this. We get a lot of school stuff in this chapter, a lot of kind of homework, the way teachers are interacting with the students. And in a similar vein to the Uranus comment, what I think this is starting to show is that school is ramping up. We're getting more intense. We're going closer to our OWLs or OWLs. The pressure on the academics is getting more intense. Meanwhile, we have the Triwizard Tournament coming up and speculation is rampant on who's going to be the Hogwarts champion and Cedric Diggory seems to be a frontrunner. Hogwarts is prepping for the other schools to show up with lots of cleaning, lots of decorating. Even Professor McGonagall is really rude to Neville. There's a moment here when she tells him, don't tell them you can't even perform a switching spell, which I know McGonagall kind of is, you know, a tough, tough cookie, tough, tough old bird, but I think this is kind of over the line. Yeah, I mean, I understand her her desire to not be embarrassed, but also, who does she think Neville's going to talk to about this? Neville has never shown himself to be the most outgoing person to go up to people like, hey, I'm not so good at magic. Like, I, right. I don't know what she's concerned yeah, about Yeah, excuse me, Mr. Victor Crumb, just uh, let me know. Like, you know, can't do as much as well. I just want to make some conversations, ask okay. an autograph. Okay. <laughs> Whatever. Okay, okay. <laughs> 
Yeah, not gonna happen. And it was just rude and kind of hurtful. I was reading that again, seemed excessive to me. We also hear Fred and George doing some more suspicious stuff, talking more suspiciously, talking about someone avoiding them, but we don't know what's going on and we're not gonna know. For a while. <laughs> not till what, second to last chapter, last yeah, chapter of yeah. the book? Not until yet. But we don't know what's going on. It's very clear something is happening. And despite Hermione's best efforts, Spoo, or the Society for the Promotion of Elfish Welfare. Yeah, yeah that's it's, it's a I mouthful. Ne- I never say it when I read it. No, I always say Spoo, and I know yeah. Hermione doesn't like that. It's not the, going very well. Don't give it those initials. Like, if you don't want people to call it Spoo, don't name it. Absolutely. It's not going very well. She's She has not been successful recruiting. People don't want to give her any money to join this little club. But I very much appreciate the effort. You need to resist. Yeah. That's important. Very important. Sirius eventually responds to Harry saying, Nice try. I'm, I'm still coming up. Which, of course, that's what he was going to respond. We talked about that just like a minute or two ago. And uh, the chapter ends with our introduction to the other schools. Bobaton arrives in a gigantic horse-drawn carriage with winged horses. We're introduced to Madame Maxine. And then shortly after that, a ship rises out of the lake. And here we have Durmstrang. We meet very briefly Igor Karkaroff, the head of Durmstrang. And we see that his favorite student is none other than Victor Crump. So it's time to stir our cauldrons and sip on some tea. What are our big questions or hot takes for chapters 13 through 15 of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire? I'll go first. We talked about this, Trelawney's prediction. Am I reading Saturn right that you must have been born in midwinter? Well, it's funny in the moment because we know Harry was born at the end of July. And Could not be more wrong. Extra funny because a huge part of the real prophecy that she was the one to give <laughs> said born as the seventh, you know, month dies or ends or whatever it says. But I have heard, and Ken, I would like to know if you've heard this theory, that a good old Voldemort was actually born in midwinter. Yeah, I've, I've heard this theory as well. And, and, you know, I think everyone who listened to the last book knows that I have a soft spot for Trelawney's predictions. I thought I, you were going to say a her... soft spot for Voldemort. <laughs> <laughs> a soft spot for Voldemort. You love my Death Eaters. Uh, no, I have a soft spot for Trelawney's predictions. And I think this is a pretty clear case, at least, of Voldemort was born in midwinter and Trelawney, you know, saw the part of Voldemort's soul that's in Harry, unbeknownst to so, one of them. So let me be clear. You don't think she's just like really lucky in her guesses. You no. think she actually is seeing the future? <laughs> I give her more credit than most of you. I think that she once again is correct without meaning to be. But do you actually think she's seeing anything or do you think it's just like super lucky? Low column A, low column B. I mean, okay. like, <laughs> right. like, she clearly has the gift because she makes correct predictions. She makes real predictions. And she also, you know, is clearly a little bit of a, for show, a little bit of a con artist. She makes, you know, crap up all the time. But as with most of her predictions, she's not wrong. It's just that we don't necessarily see the full picture of it until later. Fair enough. Check in, chew up, tune out. OK Drugs Peach Eatables are the perfectly calming remedy for those seeking a gentle easing of worry. OK Drugs gummies help to shift perspectives, elevate experiences, and find clarity in crazy. Peach Eatables are vegan, THC-free, made with broad-spectrum CBD to help relax, and L-theanine to help you stay focused. Go to okdrugs.co to order your feel-good fix and use the promo code TIMETURNER to get 10% off today. 
I love the OK Drugs Peach Eatables. They taste amazing and help keep things cool, calm, and collected. OKDrugs.co. Remember to use the promo code TIMETURNER for 10% off. So next, let's move on to something we just talked about at the end of the last book, which is how Harry tries to, you know, convince Sirius not to come up north. And Sirius is like, no, I'm going to do it anyways. And Harry's, you know, freaking out. He's thinking, you know, Sirius can come up. He's going to get captured and all going to be Harry's fault. He's going to lose his godfather. Do we think this is just, you know, Harry being Harry normal? Or do we think this is, you know, a nice foreshadow for the next book? I think it's a really good question. And I am I'm firmly in the camp of this is for foreshadowing that seeing Harry's guilt over that his actions could impact Sirius's future and again that he didn't think about that until it was too late he didn't even contemplate that Sirius was going to take his letter and say I'm coming up is very similar to what happened in book five and it's unfortunate that Harry didn't learn it's sort of like this is like what happened light this is the you know consequences for your actions and it was okay and maybe because it turned out okay here Harry didn't really take that as a lesson, but his acting impulsively was a major contributing factor to Sirius's death in the next book. And I, I do think this is the first kind of sign. Well, it's not the first sign that Harry is impulsive, but I think this is a good reflection looking back after book five to say, hey, we saw this. This came up before. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's also something to be said for this kind of going towards Harry's, you know, saving people thing. Sirius is saying, I'm coming up because there's a lot of troubling things happening. Something's going on and like things aren't going well and we need to like be prepared. We need to be on the lookout. Like Dumbledore knows things aren't going well. Moody's there. Be careful because things are not going as they should. And Harry's first instinct isn't, oh, like, is there dark stuff happening? Like I just saw with these Death Eaters, his first instinct is protect someone he loves. So it kind of goes to his savior complex as well that he's going to completely ignore when Hermione was 100% right about how uh, Order of the Phoenix was going to play out. Yeah. Sirius is there. And his greatest, you know, strength is his greatest weakness. After it's too late, all he thinks about is Sirius can't go to, you know, ask about it. He can't go to prison. He can't get caught. He can't be killed. He's really not thinking about the bigger picture here. And again, I, I've said this again and again. I know you go back and forth as... We all do when we read the books. Sometimes we read it and we're like, Harry's amazing. Sometimes we read it, we're like, he's kind of dumb. I am on this read very pro-Harry. And I think it's really easy to forget he is 14 years old. Like, is he really supposed to understand these consequences? Well, not even that, but we have the hindsight of knowing what happened at the end of this book. Yeah, knowing like, why didn't that... Harry read Order of the Phoenix? Like, right. Didn't he know? <laughs> right, right. Like, we know that the signs Sirius and Dumbledore are worried about are Voldemort coming back. Like, we're starting to get a couple hints of that. This point but based on the events of the previous three books based on harry's experience in the wizarding world he has no reason to truly believe that like this is what's going to change everything so i'm, I'm with you I'm, I'm more pro harry i think that you know hindsight's 2020 in this case and we can't really fault harry for that one so you brought up earlier, Alyssa, so maybe you can expand on a little bit here, the ethics of Moody's class. Do we like him teaching the curses and putting the Imperius curse on the students? Is this not cool to do to a bunch of 14-year-olds? So we talked in our crossover episode how I suspect a lot of the point system was kind of rigged and Dumbledore kind of building Harry's confidence. So when you're talking about whether it's okay for Moody to teach these courses to put the students under the Imperius curse, there's sort of two ways I'm looking at it. One way is the Harry's arc. This is Harry's story. Harry's the hero. Harry needed this. 
Harry needed to see these curses. He needed to understand these curses. He needed to understand the Imperius curse. He truly needed to understand the Avada Kedavra curse. And I think ultimately this was good for Harry. I don't really actually mind the teaching of the curses themselves. I think it's really important to teach kids the good and the bad. I think that's critical. To put a student under an unforgivable curse to me seems excessive. See, it's funny. I think your comment about no issue teaching the students is a really good one because it's uh, something I have in my notes to bring up later, but I'll bring up now instead, which is that I'm kind of a little surprised that Hermione was the only student who seemed to know there was a killing curse. Like, obviously, Hermione knows everything, but, like, I feel like if you're in the wizarding world, like, isn't that something you ask about, like, when you're five? Like, is there a curse that can kill? And the fact that no one else in the class seems to know the Avada Kedavra curse exists seems a little surprising to me. Yeah, I agree. And there's only so many comparisons in our muggle world. But like at 14, we certainly knew what a bomb was or what mm -hmm. a gun was or about a billion other ways you can get killed or die. It seems like these curses are more of a taboo than something that actually happens in real life. But because of the way Harry's life pans out, he sees it a lot. Yeah. And so it was important not only for Harry, but for us as the reader to understand not only are these curses really bad, what they are, how to recognize them, what they feel like. I mean, ultimately, Harry uses two of the three unforgivable mm -hmm. curses in book seven. Yeah. I mean, and I think he would have used Avada Kedavra if it made sense, which it didn't and at the he time. tries to use uh, one of them next book. Yes, he doesn't do it very well, yeah. but he does try. So sticking with these Moody lessons, because I think there's so much there to talk about. Moody says that the Ministry of Magic doesn't want them to teach the students about these curses until they're six years, but Moody says that Dumbledore and himself have a higher opinion of the students. So to me, at least, this seemed like the first real big break between the Ministry and Dumbledore that becomes even bigger next book. Like, we've seen Dumbledore, you know, disagree with Fudge, but like when the governor said they want him to resign, Dumbledore's like, okay, peace out, I'm gone. Have fun with the Basilisk. Not actually, Still was, you know, obviously. Help will always help, come to help, those. Right. But like, <laughs> but like he didn't like fight it. He was like, okay, you want me gone, I'm gone. But like here he's just saying the ministry wants us to do one thing. We're just ignoring them. And to me, this seemed like the first real sign of a break between the Ministry and Dumbledore. I would think that also falls into the foreshadowing bucket. We're starting to learn about the government. A big part of this book is actually understanding the government and the different departments and the divisions and the corruption. Because the next book, all it is, is government censorship, corruption, and the fascist state. Yeah. We'll talk about it. Uh, crazy book. I think you're you're right, ultimately, that this is really the start of that. And it's giving us a sense of, oh, I didn't really know that the government cared about what was taught at Hogwarts. Oh, but Dumbledore can overrule them. So actually, is this like a private school that's like funded by government dollars? <laughs> <laughs> How does this work? I don't really know. And I think we've talked about this before. We'll talk about it again. The Harry Potter world that has been built is rich and it's really, really good. And the themes are awesome. But I do think there are some parts of the world building that are insufficient. And I know we've talked, Ken and I have talked about this before, but while we first started the pod, I was watching Game of Thrones for the first time. And I'm not going to give any spoilers, of course, for that. But 
I do think, and hot take of the day maybe, but I do think that the world building in A Song of Ice and Fire is much more sophisticated than the world building here. Now, given that is a set of books truly for grown-ups, like really, really, really for grown-ups, but there are questions about the government, the culture, and the wizarding world that we just are never going to get. Right. And and I think you're 100% right. I agree. You know, uh, Song of Ice and Fire is a much more built-out world. I'm actually talking about a different series I think I brought up before, but I'm currently rereading The Cimmerillion, which is essentially the Bible for Lord of the Rings. And it is such an expansive world. And there's so much there. So in comparison, Harry Potter does seem relatively underdeveloped when, you know, you have a mayor as the most powerful person in the Mayor place. Fudge, my favorite character. <laughs> we haven't talked about him at all today. That's okay. We can go, we can go a week without talking yeah. about him. He's only a mayor after all. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. So one last comment about Moody's lessons, and then we'll move on. But we made special note earlier of mentioning that Neville brings up the Cruciatus curse. And when he does, Moody makes a comment being like, you're Longbottom, right? And Neville's like, yeah. And then Moody doesn't say anything, but, you know, moves on and shows the curse. We will, of course, later find out that the reason why Neville acted the way he did regarding the curse because his parents were tortured into insanity with the Cruciatus curse. This has a particularly pointed impact on him, the same way Avada Kedavra does on Harry. But even more so, Moody, well, really Crouch Jr. pretending to be Moody, was one of the people who tortured his parents. Oh, this is sick. This like, is really sick when you right. really think about Barty Crouch Jr. being Moody, who's teaching Neville about the curse that he's never really seen before, but he knows about that he actually used on his parents to the point of insanity. That's some batshit crazy right, stuff. Unbelievably disgusting. Like, he, he's like, oh, you're a long bomb, right? And in his head, like, you know he's connecting. He's like, oh, I tortured this kid's parents into insanity. Now let me show him what it's like. Like, what a sick guy. Like, I got terrible goosebumps reading at this time because I'm like, oh my God, this could be one of the most disgusting things in this book series. Like, when you really think about it. I think it's important. So it's not disgusting to me in the way that it's like something that the author ignored and it's just gross. It's more of like a, this is really sad. It also really highlights the comparisons that we have to get to at some point, and it's not really this book, but between Neville and Harry. Mm -hmm. They really missed out on that friendship early on. They had a lot of shared trauma, a lot of shared psychological issues, and I'm glad that Neville has kind of the glow up, right, that he does, but there are a lot of comparisons here, and this was was sad in the movie, and this was sad in, in the book. Yeah, and, you know, we never find out, obviously, but, you know, I, and we can talk about this more when we get to those similarities and how easy it could have been for Harry and Neville's lives to be reversed. But I do always wonder, you know, did Harry ever tell Neville? Like, does he ever have that conversation like, hey, like... Could have been you! Could have been this you. Crap. Right. <laughs> like... It's hard to think about. Yeah, there's a lot of fanfic out there. Neville's really the chosen one, and Harry's on the... You know, the fans are right. Fan fiction. I mean, the creativity is just... It's exceptional. (laughs) It truly is exceptional. There's a lot of smart Harry Potter fans out there. There are. There are. And, you know, the world is just so big. And, you know, we were just shitting on the world (laughs) as not being as sophisticated as as other book series. But I will say that world being underdeveloped lets fan fiction run wild in a way that it's not as easy on a system that is completely built. The lack of understanding the culture, the lack of understanding backstories and the government and how it all works together as the economy, it actually makes for more interesting, uh, you know, creative writing. We, we know about like five things that happened to James and Lily when they were at school. There's so much space for fan fiction to go back and say, 
what were their lives like when they were in school? And there's a lot of fan fiction out there that does that. Yeah, really good fan fiction on the James and Lily Marauders era. And I, I've been saying forever that I think there needs to be a Marauder kind of HBO-like spin-off. I think that'd be really, really cool. Would be cool. But I don't, I don't run the world. <laughs> the last kind of question I, I'd like to bring up before we wrap for today. Forgive me another glass on the movie here. It's a really bad movie, folks. Okay, <laughs> it's just too easy. They're making it too easy on us. Why in the movie do we have Bobaton as a girls only school and Durmstrang as a boys only school we know that that's actively not in the book that's not a thing so why why did it have to be like that and it's interesting because as we talk about what seems like every episode the author that wrote these series <laughs> keeps coming out with these awful awful articles comments that are anti-trans and and really bigoted and it's sad and it makes us disappointed we talk about that a lot and we're really focusing on the books we're not talking about that but this is interesting because it wasn't in the books. <laughs> this was in the movies. Why? I don't get that. I have to think it was just to, uh, you know, make it a bigger contrast. Like you have a female champion from one school, a male champion from the other school. So make them, you know, same gendered schools. And Well, they wanted to see the pretty French girls in the dresses. I well, don't know. We know that's what Ron wanted, but so yeah. maybe, maybe this whole book, maybe this whole movie's from Ron's perspective and he didn't even realize it or anything. Maybe. <laughs> I, all I'm saying is I can't think of a good reason why the writers of the movie did this. I, I don't know why. It doesn't make any sense to me, but okay. I mean, that's what it is. Pointing out a difference. Yeah. Like I said, I think it creates more contrast. You know, you have Hogwarts as mixed gender and then you have same gender schools, but who cares? Like, it, it could have been done without it. Absolutely. So with that, we are wrapping for today for Harry Potter Goblet of Fire, chapters 13 through 15. As always, thank you for listening, downloading, subscribing, giving us reviews, following us on social media at Time Turner Pod. That's Twitter and Instagram. We always love to hear from you. And a big shout out to Julia Christian, our amazing editor. Thank you, Julia. We love you. Everyone else loves you too for making us not sound awful. And just a special note, this isn't about Harry Potter, but this episode was actually recorded together. Uh, as I think most of you know, Ken and I don't live in the same state. We do this virtually, but we are at our parents' house celebrating our mom's birthday. And so we decided to do kind of a special recording situation when we are together. So it's been pretty cool, a little different. Yeah, this has been fun to do it sitting next to each other rather than over Zoom. I like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Way less supplies. At least. Oh my God, it's so much easier. So um, this was very cool. Hopefully we get a chance to do it again and uh, look out on that social media because we will post some actual pictures of us recording this episode thank you all for listening make sure that you put some liberal amounts of jam on your toast this morning <laughs>